you lovely people out there. You are listening to The Unscientific Method, where we unpack the research and lives of the young scientists doing amazing things all around us. I'm your host, Beth, and today I'm super excited to welcome Deeraj Minar, or Dij, who's in the process of completing his MD-PhD degrees at UBC. And this means he'll be both a medical doctor and a doctor of philosophy in biochemistry and molecular biology. He's working on his PhD now on COVID research in the lab of Dr. Sriram Subramaniam, who is a leader in this super, super cool type of microscopy called cryo-electron microscopy, which he'll tell us all about today. Welcome, Dij. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Tell us a bit about your research. What have you been doing during this pandemic time? Over in our lab, we've been studying the structural biology of the SARS-CoV-2 spike glycoprotein. And as many of your listeners would probably know, there have been several variants that have emerged. We've been basically looking at the spike proteins of these variants as well and looking at how they're similar, how they're different, and potentially what the effects of these mutations on these spikes could be with regards to evading antibodies and perhaps what effects they could have on infecting cells as well. And how do you do that? How do you look at the spike protein like that? Yeah, so we use this really cool technology called cryo-electron microscopy. Basically, that allows us to visualize uh, at near atomic resolution the actual three-dimensional structure of these sites as they exist in aqueous solution. That's amazing. How do you actually get to that resolution? So there's been like a lot of really, really, really cool seminal discoveries, uh, mainly in like data processing and physics and signal propagation. And it's a lot of hardcore math, a lot of hardcore physics, and I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on it. I'm more of an end user myself. But basically, the general idea is to have a more or less purified biological sample, vitrify it. So what that really means is to freeze it so quickly that the water molecules that are present in the, in the aqueous buffer that you're using don't have a chance to form an ordered clathrate structure, which is normally what happens when you form ice. So you form this really ordered structure. So the idea is to freeze these specimens so quickly that that process can't happen. And so the only ordered information that results is from the biomolecule. And then once you've done that, you basically bombard these samples with electrons, sort of have a detector underneath, and you sort of see how the electrons interacted with the sample. You know, these, these micrographs that show, you could think of it as a shadow almost of the specimen that you have used for that experiment. And then it becomes a matter of using very complicated computational tools to go from this micrograph of all these shadows to picking each shadow and understanding which orientation of the biomolecule of interest that shadow came from. And then going backwards and reconstructing a three-dimensional volume from all of those different shadows and all of those different things. Wow, that's so cool. So when I think of microscopy, I usually think of light microscopy. Why are you using electrons? They have a very, very short wavelength. They really give you an opportunity to achieve very, very, very high resolution images and structures to give you high resolution data. Of course, we don't actually achieve anything close to the limit that electrons would give us with our studies. Um, there's a lot of other things that limit us in our resolution. Um, so you're taking these electron microscopy photos of COVID spike protein, and does it tell you the structural details of what it looks like? Yeah, so what we do is we express and purify the SARS-CoV-2 spike glycoprotein, and we get these three-dimensional images then link those images to some functional 
outcome, right? There's uh, this is all predicated on structure, function. If there's a functional change, then there should be a structural explanation for it. That's the assumption that we we operate under. And sometimes, let me tell you, looking at the structure, wait a minute, I don't see anything too different. How does this really uh, explain this, uh, you know, functional outcome that we're seeing in, uh, in other experiments? So sometimes it's a bit of a of a head scratcher, but a lot of the times it's very obvious. You're like, oh yeah, this is exactly what what causing you know this phenomenon. Oh wow! Do you see that in the different variants then? So you see, you look at the different spike proteins between the different variants. How does that tell you about how they function? For example, a lot of work happened really early on in the pandemic to look at this at the spike protein, mainly because it's such a important protein in the viral life cycle. This is what allows the virus to enter and infect human cells. This is what all of the vaccine efforts so far have used as the major antigen to elicit immunological responses. And that's because if you stop the spike protein, you can effectively stop the virus. Interesting and important questions that you can answer from a structural perspective become, well, how do antibodies recognize the spike? How do neutralizing antibodies find the spike? Maybe how do non-neutralizing antibodies find the spike? Where are neutralizing epitopes on the spike from a three-dimensional perspective? That's a really important question that a lot of other people around the world have been looking at. And we've looked at that as well. And then on top of that, the ability to look at the three-dimensional structure of the spike protein as it's bound to its receptor, which uh, is called angiotensin-converting enzyme, or ACE2. That's the human receptor that it binds to, and that sort of allows it to enter human cells. So the ability to look at that complex is also really important because it tells us how exactly, what molecular contexts are being made. From a molecular perspective, how does the entry step occur? How does recognition of this receptor happen? Once you have that figured out, and that again happened early on in the pandemic by several other groups, you can start to look at the equivalent structures and ask the equivalent questions using variant spikes. And that's exactly what we've been doing. And so we can make these variant spikes, we can solve the structures of these spikes complex to these receptors, and we can see what's changed. And we can see maybe there are new contacts being made. Sometimes we find that actually some contacts are being lost. And same thing with antibodies. We can see if antibodies can still bind, what's changed, what's the same. A lot of times what we're seeing is actually most of the antibodies we're looking at, they aren't able to bind anymore. And that tells you that these mutations are allowing the spike to escape these antibodies. And you can then look at the structure of the spike and you can see, oh yes, this epitope has been rearranged. This area of the spike that was once a vulnerable hotspot for neutralizing antibodies has sometimes drastically and sometimes very subtly been changed due to the effect of these mutations. Okay. And so neutralizing antibodies are the ones that will bind and prevent it from functioning? So we use neutralizing, I guess, here to define antibodies that are able to prevent the virus from entering cells. That makes sense. And so the idea being that if somebody has these antibodies, they can essentially stop the virus from getting into the cell at that point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're saying the side of it, there's the neutralizing antibodies, and then there's the strength of it binding to its receptor ACE2. Can you look at the strength? So can you actually see the different strength by the different contacts? Or is that something that comes from other kind of experiments afterwards? Yeah, so we take a very like interdisciplinary approach. We never just use structural information to say much. This has to be complemented by several other complementary techniques. So with regards to you know antibody or receptor binding, we have a lot of biochemical binding assays that we use. 
biolayer interferometry is a type of binding assay that our collaborators actually at the University of Pittsburgh run for us on these spike proteins uh, using ACE2, which is the receptor. And in our lab, we use a lot of enzyme-linked sorbent assays, or ELISAs, as they're commonly referred to, and that allows us to look at the ability of certain antibodies to interact with sites as well. Where do you fall into this? What kind of stuff do you do on the spectrum of different experiments? I work in like a super, super interdisciplinary team. We've got protein biochemists, which I guess that's sort of where I fall more on the spectrum. And then we've also got electrical engineers. We've got software designers, got you know, a really, really cool group of people with a wide breadth of expertise. And so where I fall in is all the biochemistry, molecular biology, immunology, those sort of areas. That's sort of where I work in. So it'll be like cell culture, protein expression and purification, biophysical assays, running lives. I also do a lot of pseudoviral neutralization assays. So we actually have the ability to use a sort of pseudovirus that mimics SARS-CoV-2 and, and look at the ability of antibodies to block the virus from being able to infect human cells. So all those assays I run, and then we sort of intersect with the electron microscopy team a little where you know, I'll bring them biological samples and, and they will please use those samples to get these images and do some data processing and send back the three-dimensional volumes over to me and, and others in the lab. And, you know, we will spend quite a bit of time interpreting these structures and combing through them and, and really trying to see what's changed and perhaps finding explanations for what we're finding in the, in the, in the wet lab using our biochemical app. So do you spend a lot of time then in the lab doing these assays to start in protein purification? Yeah, yeah. So like earlier on in the pandemic when we were, you know, getting everything optimized was mainly just months of protein purification, pseudoviral entry assay, cell culture. It was a lot of binding assays. You know, there was a lot of optimizing that had to happen. And when we do a lot of these complexes, antibody spike complexes, and these receptor spike complexes, and have to use these complexes for structural studies. It took a lot of optimization to figure out, you know, what ratios do we need to achieve this, you know, binding, and how do we need to make these grids? Because again, we have to essentially traumatize these proteins quite a bit by freezing them really quickly. There's a there's a lot of little bolts that sort of have to come together, and we were going at nonstop for you know the first several months of the pandemic. But once we sort of had that figured out, everything became really streamlined. Oh, awesome. So these days, you know, I spend, yeah, maybe half of my time in the lab and half of my time, you know, looking at structures and trying to interpret them. And yeah. Kind of on the, like, the analysis side of things. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Cool, cool. Um, and what's it like working in a COVID lab? I assume it's very fast paced because you're constantly getting new information. We're always hearing about new types of variants that are coming out. What, what's that like for you? Oh, yeah. It's like, it's, it's almost exhausting, honestly. Um, but it is really cool. Yeah, it's, it's very, you said it, right? Like, it's super fast paced. Every day, there's like three or four papers that come out. You know, everything that you're thinking about, you're like, okay, we got to come at it from a different angle. Even, yeah, even just reading the literature to keep up with what's going on. Is, Could take all your time, right? Yeah, it's a task. It's a task in and of itself. Um, but, you know, we're, we're really good at, at, at dividing and conquering this in, in this team and in this lab. So, you know, we, we have like a, on our Slack, um, we have like a COVID papers channel where everyone just kind of dumps all the papers <laughs> as they come out. And, you know, we all take turns like summarizing the key points. And, and, and oh, that's of, good distilling it for everyone because yeah there's no way any one person I think could do research and 
keep up with the field as, as it stands right now. Are you trying to publish quite quickly as well? Because I know, I mean, in, in labs, often it takes quite a while to get a paper out, to develop a story and that kind of thing. But but when you're in the middle of a pandemic, that information is, of course, important to a lot of a lot of people and it's good to get it out there. So what's the what's the publication process like? Oh, yeah, that's yeah, I'm, we're going through that right now, actually, with a couple of papers. But for me, this is my first experience publishing it at all. So I don't know if like, I, I don't really have a baseline to compare it to. My impression is that, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite rapid. The editors, you know, at journals, they, they realized that, especially earlier on, maybe, maybe now less so, but earlier on the pandemic, they, the editors definitely were making a lot more of the efforts to, you know, have viewers get back quickly and speed up the whole process. But, you know, BioArchive, which is like a preprint server, has been super, super cool during the pandemic. Like, I think all of our papers we use our BioArchives um, when we send them out for review so other people can see them and, and start signing them if they, if they want to. And a lot of the, you know, cutting edge, I guess, results that we like to follow, they end up on BioArchives first before they get published as well. So, you know, a lot of what we actually throw in that Slack channel that I was talking about earlier end up really being BioArchive. So that's really been cool for being able to get the message out quickly. Do you end up having to do a lot of communication with the public as well? Is that part of what happens when you do COVID research? A lot of science is is a little disconnected from, of course, the public. It seems that more people are paying attention to COVID with good reason. We don't communicate too much. I, I do know one of one of the papers we put out earlier this year, you know, we we had a whole bunch of press releases for it. And I think it got picked up by the Vancouver Sun. And, and so we were very, we have to be like super, super careful in how we wrote our press release because, you oh, know, it's one course. thing to write an abstract to a group of scientists who will clearly or hopefully clearly see what you did, see the limitations, see what you can say, see what you can't say. But it's another thing to try and convey that to the public. Is I think it's easy for non-specialist audiences or people who don't really think about science that much to maybe over-interpret, you know, the results of the study or, or you know, maybe get the wrong idea. So yeah, I'd actually, I think we spent like three or four days, like, you know, hammering out this text that was going to be, you know, part of this press release for this paper, just to make sure, you know, it read well and was accurate and really would not leave any area for anyone to over-interpret or misinterpret what we were saying. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, so kind of choosing your language in a, in a specific way. Mm-hmm. And did you, did you always think you were going to do virology research? It was this like where you, where you initially kind of got into, um, into your PhD expecting you were going to do virus-based research? No, not at all, actually. Yeah. I'm super, super interested in like cancer biology and the structural biology of like drug design, like rational drug design, various targets, protein targets, cancers as a very vague sort of general statement. But yeah, that's definitely where my mind was going when I joined this lab. That's definitely where my initial sort of interests were. I mean, the, the MD-PhD program and planning out my PhD. But yeah, yeah then like the pandemic hit and, you know, we sort of made the collective sort of decision in our lab to pivot and address it. And so that's sort of what I ended up working on. And, you know, it's been really cool. It's been really rewarding. It's definitely taking me way out of my comfort zone, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When did you start in the lab? Formally, I started in the lab, or I started in the lab this like September. But because the first years of my program are are basically medical school years, but you know you can sort of get time to get into the lab earlier on if you're keen. And I'm super super keen. I love being in the lab. I love being in science. So of course oh, awesome. I was I was um, you know running from class and lab as soon as like within the first year of medical school actually. How does uh, what you were describing to me in terms of what you do? apply to cancer biology 
there are many, many, many drug targets out there for a variety of different purposes. And I guess the technology is, is really what's important here. So, you know, the ability to visualize uh, macromolecules, the biological molecules at, you know, atomic or near atomic resolution, you know, allows us to basically start thinking about how we can maybe target these um, proteins therapeutically. Like maybe we could you know, design a drug that might sit here in this pocket or maybe in that area of the, of the protein, that, that sort of thinking really. And that, that's really coming from actually crystallography and other older um, techniques as well, which are great. But the ability for, you know, cryo-EM to get us to these resolutions these days really means that we can start looking at larger macromolecules, more complicated protein complexes. For example, there are many, many proteins that actually don't don't really exist in isolation within a cell. They're actually usually bound to several other interacting proteins. And so the ability to, you know, look at these complexes in an aqueous solution, um, as opposed to looking at them in a, in a crystal, and then sort of come up with, you know, therapeutically viable strategies from this information is something that I think is really interesting and something that, you know, that's exactly where the field is moving as well. So is this something that you could theoretically apply to really any biological problem? You've got the idea of like how these proteins interact and then how can we think about it in the context of different diseases? Yeah, I mean, that's just that's just like one aspect of it, right? Like, you know, it, it really is. It's it's really just expanding the landscape for what we can look at structurally and then move on to try to target rationally, right? Like before OEM was was a huge technique that was being used by a lot of people and before you know they call it the resolution revolution where we could actually get to I love that <laughs> you know high resolution OEM a lot of people had to use things like x-ray crystallography and maybe protein NMR as well to you know and they're really really great techniques out there you know they do come with their limitations as, as any technique as cryoEM does in and of itself but yeah the ability to use cryoEM to you know start to look at some of these proteins in more of a native environment you know, it, it allows you to potentially start defining more biologically relevant pharmacological targets. You know, proteins don't exist by themselves. Maybe proteins don't take the confirmation that they would in solution in a crystal. So maybe you can start looking at these proteins as they pack into crystals using X-ray crystallography, and it might not actually represent the you know, bona fide target as it sits in the cell. So this sort of way of thinking now is... is what's exciting about cryo-EM and, and cancer biology, the ability to look at how we can start targeting some of these protein complexes that are implicated in cancer. Like it, it, what we do really is going to revolve mainly around really good definition of important targets. Like that'll never go away. So, you know, we read a lot of cancer biology papers, you know, we we're always looking at a lot of, you know, other studies using other techniques that have really implicated you know, protein X or protein Y as, as being, you know, important constituent of driving a certain thing. We'll sort of then start thinking about making the decision to maybe study it using cryolium, investigate how we can start uh, therapeutically targeting it. So, I mean, you're doing an MD-PhD, and is this something that you anticipate being able to say, okay, so, hey, in this lab, this is what we're looking at structurally. This is how we know these proteins look interacting in the cell. We can design this target rationally. And then as you kind of go to your medical doctor side, you can clinically think about targeting different cancers that way. Is that kind of how you see it going in the future? Yeah, I, I, I think so. It's It's... It's really hard. Like I came into this program thinking, okay, it's going to be really like cool to, you know, have the clinical side of things and have the basic science side of things. And then, you know, I'm going to find a way to just sort of stick them together. Merge them um, together. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The more, the more I work uh, and, and, you know, and learn about basic science and, and 
spend time in the lab. I, I guess like I, I do see that still as like my goal. It becomes increasingly, increasingly clear to me that it's going to be a lot more difficult than I expected it to be, which, you know, it's totally okay. But yeah, and I think just because there's just so many, I guess, steps that you have to go between like, you know, having a, a target in mind, and maybe you even have a, a drug or a, or a compound, let's say that, you know, inhibits that, and, you know, you're in your little in vitro assays in the lab, you know, looking great, but there's just so many steps between there and, you know, actually putting that into a human being. Yeah. Yeah. If I guess like right now, like the straight line that I drew from like, all right, I'm going to do a PhD in, you know, special biology and come up with all these cool compounds. And then, you know, I'm going to go back and, and become a clinician and I'll be able to just like draw that straight line across those two fields. You know, it's, it's becoming increasingly clear to me that, okay, it's not going to be a straight line. It's going to be a lot of, you know, maybe going back and forth. Um, and relying on a lot of other people with a lot of other expertise to really get things going. Yeah. yeah, I've been talking to some folks lately about about that kind of transition. I think I think the term they used was bench to bedside, and how there's like this this huge lack of the ability to be able to get things from kind of the basic science community into the clinic. How long it takes, and and all the expertise that's needed. It's a real real long process, from what I understand. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm also realizing a lot more like the importance of like, I guess, industry and like biotechnology companies. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Most, most bench to bedside things, you know, they, when you get closer to the bedside, you kind of have to get a company involved. It, it was from my limited knowledge and, and what I've seen. So far. Yeah. To be able to make a, a product, essentially, you need a company to be able to do that. Yeah. What, what brought you to this in the first place? What brought you to protein biochemistry and, and kind of medical school, this, this interaction between the two? It's a cool spot. I came to medicine and science sort of from a, maybe like, Bit of a different, maybe more unique background and circumstance. So I, I used to be a, a mechanic actually. Oh, cool. So I, uh, in high school, you know, I was never really into science, uh, never really into academics that much. I actually remember, like, I think I dropped out of my grade 11 a chemistry class. I told my high school teacher, oh man, this is like, you know, this is useless information. I'm not yeah. really going to know this. Like, <laughs> get me out of here. Yeah, I'm never going to uh, need this. <laughs> definitely sorry. I want to say sorry to, uh, that teacher one day I think I should go back there and yeah <laughs> but yeah no so I, I opted in grade 12 to do this program called ACIT which is basically instead of doing like traditional high school grade 12 you start your first year of a trades on like a red seal trades program so I went into automotive service technician and did that for a couple of years and I guess like I, my mom had like some uh, health concerns she ended up having triple negative breast cancer and just watching her sort of go through that process, um, started chemotherapy and ended up having a mastectomy. You know, she's she's still alive today and, and I'm really, really grateful for that. But yeah, watching watching all that happen, you know, the, the effect of the chemotherapy on her heart was, um, you know, so, so profound that she basically went to heart failure later on in life and needed a, she lives now with an ICD, um, which basically keeps her heart going. So just sort of watching all of that happen and you know, there wasn't really like any aha moment or click. It was just, it was a very gradual sort of process of just watching and reflecting made me sort of think like, wow, like this is super cool that, you know, people have spent time and energy, uh, how to cure my mom or, you know, help her through this. And, you know, this technology, you know, this ICD that's keeping my mom alive, 
that's that's such a huge gift. And, you know, at the same time, cars were becoming more and more like um, computerized, and I sort of felt like I was getting left behind in the field a little bit more. Um, okay. So you know, it was it was there were, that was definitely in my mind as well. And so I sort of thought to myself, well, you know, maybe I could do something like this. Maybe I could get involved in, in, in science and technology and medicine. You know, just see see if I could you know contribute something to the world similar to how others have, have been able to bless me and my family with my mom's health and so mm-hmm. yeah i made the decision to to go to university and just you know nothing, nothing big just like i think i just took like a couple bio biology like 11 and or no biology 12 i guess upgrading classes at a local community college uh, just to see how it was and really enjoyed it sort of fell in love with it and yeah sort of never looked back and then, and then, how did you get into biochemistry itself? Mm-hmm. I really enjoy how I guess biochemistry as a as a field, you sort of are able to dissect all these little aspects of chemistry and biology into into sort of meaningful groups. You know, you got your like protein, DNA, or RNA, or lipids, and sort of like put together a systems approach to explaining how all these things give rise to cells and, and life. And it, yeah, it just really resonated with me and sort of made a lot of sense. And I really liked that sort of framework for being able to look at the world and being able to explain the world from a very chemical-based viewpoint. So yeah, that really resonated with me. And I decided to transfer into the biochemistry program at UBC. Very cool. That's, a, that's quite a beautiful story. Really, really lovely. Glad your mom is doing well. Really lovely how you ended up here, and now you're doing really incredible research in kind of the the biggest medical. I don't know what word to use. I don't want to say disasters, but maybe disasters <laughs> is there. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> problems of our time, I guess. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. How does it feel looking back on it? Is it, it must be kind of a whirlwind, eh? Yeah. It it feels like it's weird to reflect on it. I think like. I'm just like, I'm really good at just like not realizing things and just like doing them without realizing them. So I think like, okay. especially during my undergrad, like, you know, I was just working hard to like, you know, learn everything and have a good time if I did. So yeah, it wasn't until like maybe like maybe two years ago or even last year where I probably like actually reflected on the, this whole journey. And yeah, I don't know. It's kind of, I don't really know. <laughs> it's it's yeah, a weird sort fair. of like yeah. feeling to, to look back on it all. I don't think that like if you went back in time and talked to me however many years ago it would have been like when I finished high school that like any yeah. old me that this is what I would be doing today and I would have believed I would have looked at me get out of here. Yeah. Your high school you would be like, nah, get out of here. Like yeah. <laughs> chemistry not. is useless, remember? Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um okay, so we're gonna do a couple rapid fire questions. So I'm just gonna ask you a question and you can answer it in say one or two sentences. So what's the hardest part about your research? I would say the hardest part of our research is keeping up with the field. Mm-hmm, that makes sense. What are you most proud of? This can be in in your work. This can be in your life. This can be really anything you want it to be. In my work, I'm like super super proud to have been part of a you know a really cool team and and lead the research that we recently published, where we were able to show the atomic resolution structure of one of these variant spikes. We were the first in the world to show it, and it was very exciting. So I guess from like a, yeah, like a scientific perspective, that's probably what I'm most proud of right now. And I guess from a personal perspective, maybe just, yeah, this whole transition that I made, like that's pretty cool. Absolutely. And I saw in your bio that you're an avid musician. What kind of music do you like to play? 
Yes, I am. I actually, yeah. So when I used to be a mechanic, I was also like super, super into music. I played in like a punk rock band. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. We like toured across Canada and the States. And like, oh I was like super, super into it. Yeah. What yeah. was your name? What was the band name? Uh, the name was called Take Heart. Yeah. Take Heart? Yeah. And do you still play punk rock now? Only like with my friends, very rarely. <laughs> If you have, and I'm really going to put you on the spot here because I don't know how to answer this question, one band to recommend out for people to listen to, what band would you, would you recommend? Um, I don't know. Okay, yeah. I, I really, I, I'll just say what I've been listening to lately. I've been listening yeah, totally. to a lot of yeah, yeah. Gloss. So it's a band. Uh, yeah, they're called Gloss. It's really, a, it's an acronym for you know, um, Girls Living Outside of Society's Shit. It's an all-trans um, band. It's a punk rock band. Really, really cool stuff. So check it out. Yeah. Awesome. And and that's that's all for today. Thanks so much for joining us, Jidge. Yeah, no worries. This was lots of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. I had a great time too. And that's all on the unscientific method for now. Thanks to all you wonderful listeners out there for tuning in. If you want to reach us on social media, follow us at the.unscientific.method on Instagram or on Twitter at at unscientificubc. Send us a message on Instagram, Twitter, or at theunscientificmethod at gmail.com if you want to tell us how we're doing or request a topic that you want to hear about or you just want to talk to us. We'd love to hear from you. Bye for now.